It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome back, or welcome to Money for Lunch. Either of those, I think, are appropriate. Anyway, it's good to have you here, my friends. Thank you so much. Uh, let's see what's happening. A lot is happening. Uh, and uh, what do you call it? Going to be heading up to Austin in uh, about 30 days. Going to be filming up there in, in the great state of Texas, um, my home state. Uh, and uh, we'll be filming there in Austin as well as Houston. So uh, we'll keep you updated on that. Um, all right, let's dive into the quote of the day. The quote of the day, the way management treats associates is exactly how the associates will treat the customer. And that is by Sam Walton. And I wonder if Sam Walton was alive today, would he appreciate his stores? Are they where he thought they would be? The way management treats associates is exactly how the associates We'll Treat the Customers by Sam Walton. All right, let's get the party started. I am excited to have uh, an old friend, so to speak, uh, a return <laughs> guest, definitely, Deb Gabor here. Deb Gabor is best-selling author of uh, several books that we've had her on the show. We've talked about Branding is Sex, Get Your Customers Laid, and Sell the Hell Out of Anything. That's one of her books. Her latest book, uh, is um, irrational loyalty, and um, you know this is uh, covers all sorts of uh, branding disasters, if you will. Uh, think of United Airlines, Wells Fargo, um, Uber, and other companies whose tribulations made front page news. Deb Gabor, welcome back to Money for Lunch. Well, thank you for having me, and I'm excited to hear that you're going to be in Austin in about 30 days. I'd love it if you'd come by and see me, because that's where I am. I know. That's going to be great. I think that's, uh, that is good thinking. Yes, we'll have to make that happen. That would be a lot of fun. Right on. Good. All right. So I've got to ask you this. I ask this of all my authors. Um, why write? irrational loyalty what was the uh what was the aha moment when you decided man i gotta write this book well this was a book that kind of wrote itself so branding is sex is kind of a how-to book that was written specifically aimed at business leaders and entrepreneurs people who really want to create that strategic foundation for their brand that was that was more like a love letter to the business, if you will. And then Irrational Loyalty was a book that wrote itself. So in 2016, when Branding as Sex came out, we were sort of at, at the height of a big transformation that was happening in the world and strategies of branding. We had Donald Trump as president. We had, um, you know, and he got into office, like really by giving us a strategic masterclass in branding, you know, by appealing to people's hearts rather than their heads and getting people really riled up. And regardless of what you think about him um, politically, he, he really used branding to his advantage. We started to see the, this sort of increase in the Amazonification of the world, which is that phenomenon in which Amazon is just getting into basically every business. And if you are trying to sell a product or service on Amazon, 
Amazon. You know, basically, Amazon is the brand. Uh, we saw a lot of hotly charged political debates that that companies and brands like retailers and large companies were falling down on one side or another of the issue. We saw uh, the Me Too movement sort of pick up steam, and uh, depending on where business leaders or their companies fell on either side of those things, we saw you know a big sort of sea change in brand relationships. So this was a this was a book that sort of wrote itself. And over over those over the last couple of years between 2016 and and 2019, when this book came out, uh, I sat. I sat back and watched things happen at, you mentioned United Airlines, you mentioned Wells Fargo, you mentioned Uber. Um, it, it basically uh, showed us, you know, a number of sort of branding dumpster fires. So I felt like it was time for me to talk about what are all these various what are all these various trials and tribulations that brands go through either at their own hand or because of environmental or economic or even political things that happen? Uh, and why do some brands handle controversy really well and emerge in intact on the other side? And why do brands totally implode? So um, that's a long answer to the question of like, why write a book on irrational loyalty? Um, but, you know, like I said, it was a book that sort of wrote itself. Yeah. And, and I do like what you said there about Trump. I mean, there is so much to learn about Trump. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, what do you call it? People need to um, uh, just step back. Again, whether you love him or hate him, there is a lot uh, to learn from Trump. And even now, there's, I think, uh, more to learn from Trump because this brand – is constantly taking uh, hits. It's constantly under uh, controversy, right? As all presidential brands are, right? And and right. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that certainly there is something uh, to be continued to learn there. Um, all right. So uh, give me kind of kind of your opinion. Um, what is irrational loyalty? I love to talk about irrational loyalty. Irrational loyalty is is this idea that you are so indelibly bonded to a brand that you have such a strong emotional connection with that brand that uh, even in the worst of times, even if the brand does things that sort of make it you know fall out of favor functionally, you would still use it. The example that I always give, and I probably explained this to you the last time we were together, is you know the way that people feel about their iPhones, for instance, right? So uh, you know people who like iPhones, they really, really, really like iPhones. I always relay the the experience that I had where a couple of years ago there was a really nice competitor phone, an Android phone that came out from Samsung. I went to the store. I was like, hey, I want to try that out. I held it in my hand. I learned from the salesperson that functionally it was far superior to the iPhone, right? I didn't have to wait in line to get it. It has better battery life, more durable gr glass. It has, you know, more storage, uh, faster memory, all this kind of stuff. Yet when I held it in my hand, I actually felt dirty because I felt like I was cheating on Apple, right? And so that's, you know, that's the very notion of irrational loyalty. Irrational loyalty is that idea, like we, I think about Uber all the time. So through one of my business credit cards, I get $200 a year in Uber credits, right, which makes right. it hard for me to say no to Uber. I don't love Uber the brand. 
Um, but functionally, it's it's there for me, and I'm irrationally loyal to it because it has some kind of benefit to me that supersedes that brand. And then finally, another example of irrational loyalty that I always use, I have a favorite brand here in Texas, which is Bluebell Ice Cream. Perhaps yeah. you've heard of them. Yeah. yeah. So if you remember, a couple of years ago, they had a, a deadly listeria breakout in their manufacturing plant, and they had to shut down the plant for two years. People actually got very, very ill, and a couple people died. Yet, Bluebell Ice Cream is such a strong brand. It's so enduring. People are so bonded to it, because it isn't just about ice cream. It's about the experience of ice cream. It's about sharing a bowl of ice cream with a family. It's about nostalgia. It's about good feeling and summertime fun and Texas, when that brand came back on the market after the worst possible brand disaster that could happen, when they came back on the market, people were waiting in line out the door, down the street, around the corner to get themselves a gallon of ice cream, right, or a half gallon of vanilla ice cream. And and since then, the brand has grown um, by expanding to multiple states, adding new flavors, adding new form factors, bringing back ice cream sandwiches. And so that's what we mean by irrational loyalty. And I think that that's available to every brand, whether you're a big business or a small business or you're su- serving consumers or you're serving other businesses. Yeah, and and what's interesting too, back to what you said about how some brands handle setbacks better than others. To me, Bluebell did a great job because they were they were out in front of it. They took massive action. They they didn't try to hide. It wasn't some kind of um uh what do you call it? Um I don't know. They didn't come out with some kind of legal position type of disclaimer. You know, they were like, we're sorry. We're checking into this. We're going to, you know, we're going to get our hands around it. They were very fast to act. They took care of the, uh, the people that were sick. Uh, they got involved with, uh, with the families that, uh, you know, that uh, I believe it was uh, one or two people that, as you said, that passed away. And they even went so far as to, uh, I think there was, uh, you know, they they didn't want to lay off all their employees, and so they kept their employees on payroll for two years, while absolutely was going yeah. through all this uh, all this stuff, and and, a, and so how could you not be loyal to a brand that that. Uh, was trying to do its very best to reconcile this mistake or this issue, right? Not, I, I don't know, you know, who knows how this outbreak happened. Um, and I think this is a great, uh, what do you call it, uh, example of how you take that lemon and, and, and convert it to a lemonade of trust. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you're 100% right. This, this idea that if you, if you do have your brand in crisis, there's a right way to handle it. There's a wrong way to handle it. I think the Bluebell case is absolutely the right way to handle it. Um, all of those things that you said by taking responsibility, by apologizing and showing regard for humanity, both the people who are affected and their families as well as their employees, the community in which their business was operating, their customers, um, communicating in an active way rather than trying to blame the victims or, or blame some external 
force. That that idea, it's just like an interpersonal relationship. I, I talk to people a lot when we when we talk about branding. I use this metaphor of the emotional bank account, which if you have a loved one that you're in a relationship with, for me, I always give the example of my twenty my 21, almost 22-year-old daughter. She was just home for the summer, and um, she does a lot of things that take up a lot of psychological space for me, like leaving wet towels on her bed or, um, you know, leaving her shoes like right in front of the front door when I come in the door. You know, my life is very quiet and serene when she's when she's away at college, but when she's home, you know, there's a lot going on that's sort of like uh, chipping away at the positive balance in our emotional bank account. But on the whole, that emotional bank account is way in the positive, right? Um, because she enforces that by showing me love, by being respectful, by helping out at home. You know, if she leaves a wet towel on the bed or, God forbid, on the floor of the bathroom or in the hallway where I found one the other day, um, I'm not going to throw her out, right? And so brands, through their actions, build up this positive balance in their relationship bank account yes. with their customers. And Bluebell has done that over a period of years, that this is a brand that has behaved in a way that creates memories and expectations and warm feelings and, and emotional bonds for us that transcend ice cream. If Bluebell marketed itself on the basis of we have milk, we have sweet, we have cold, <laughs> it'd be just like any other ice cream, right? Right, but right. You know, it's nostalgia, it's fun, it's family connections, it, it's warm, it's small town, it's hometown, it's Texas, it's, you know, it's all of these things that, that fill up that bank account with, with its customers. And so when the worst kind of brand disaster happened to them, they were able to endure that and, in fact, like, grow from that relationship because they had enough stored up in that positive bank account. And so, you know, what we see happening today, especially, you know, going Going back to this hotly politically charged environment, you mentioned the Trump brand. What we're seeing is that companies and brands that have either purposefully aligned themselves with that brand or not purposefully aligned themselves with that brand, but through their behavior, it looks like they're aligning themselves through that brand indirectly. We're seeing potential damage to those brands happening, which that's what I mean by this like brand new world, pardon the pun, but this, this brand new world where you, you know, if you're managing a brand, no matter the size of your company or what industry you're in or you're serving uh, consumers or other businesses, you have to be really, really thoughtful, strategic, deliberate, uh, and, and mindful of how you are showing up in the market with a set of values and beliefs. And what do you want your behaviors? What do you want your actions? What do you want your marketing? What do you want your experience to say about you as a brand? Yeah, yeah. All right, so how does a company go about creating this irrational loyalty? I mean, I like, I like the example that you gave with your daughter. So should we start thinking in that way that I am depositing good emotional, you know, checks into my customer's bank account? Yeah, absolutely. So here, here's a really good example. This is a timely example, and this is a real-life example coming from my life. So I had some dental work done a couple of weeks ago, and my dentist 100% thinks of himself and his practice as a brand, right? 
from the minute I walk in the door and I am greeted with like good lighting, this like amazing customer waiting room, which is clean and modern and doesn't have 20 year old magazines like my old dentist's office did. Right. (laughs) Um, And children's highlights magazines. You remember this? Uh, And, you know, a coffee maker and fresh water and all that kind of stuff to like going and sitting in the chair and having the ability to pick the music I want to listen to from a Pandora station to like he placed a personal follow-up call to me yesterday to ask me uh, how I had a crown done and I have the temporary in. He, he called to ask me to follow up. How's that tooth doing? You know, do you have a follow-up uh, appointment scheduled? I want to let you know that I'm a value that, that you're a valued patient of mine. I look forward to seeing you next time. You know, here's my cell number, et cetera, et cetera. This, all of those things are, are things that in the, in the, you know, situation that potentially like they might screw up the billing or, or maybe they don't file the, the claim appropriately with the insurance company. I'm willing to give them a pass on that, right? Because right. they're depositing into that emotional bank account. So that's, you know, that's a small business example. Um, you know, the big takeaway from that is, is the idea that you should treat your brand like an experience and a relationship because that's what it is. It is not a set of products and services. Yeah, that's part of it. And 100% you have to deliver on those things and you have to meet your customers' expectations for, you know, what you have to deliver. But above and beyond that, that relationship and that bond is what creates that uniqueness for the brand that differentiates you from your competitors. Yes. I, it, you know what? And I think, I think when you look at it that way, it sometimes makes it easier to pick up the call or pick up the phone and make that call or do whatever you need to do to, to make that customer have a good customer experience, a feel good customer experience. Right. And real quick, I want to, I want to, uh, uh, shout, shout out the book real quick. It's called Irrational Loyalty, Building a Brand That Thrives in Turbulent Times. And I love that title because really, if you're going to have a business of any success, sooner or later, you're going to have some turbulent times. I mean, that's, that, that is just uh, a, per, you know, what do you call it? A, it's, it's almost a prerequisite uh, for having a big successful <laughs> business, right? If you're going to have some definitely, definitely. Like we always have turbulent times, you know, as much as I think that my company does a kick-ass job at every single thing that we do on occasion, we do things that don't exactly match our customers' expectations for whatever reason. And, you know, sometimes it's our customer's fault. Most of the time it's our fault. If we have a solid relationship, if we have a, a, a foundation of trust and accountability and, and a deep emotional bond, like a level of indispensability to our clients, they're, they're willing to work through those turbulent times and, and those disasters and trials with us. Um, I've never met a business. I've been, I've been in business for myself since 2003. Um, I, I've never had a year where we didn't have like some kind of a screw up yet. My clients stay with us year after year after year. And, you know, we have very, very strong irrational loyalty among a lot of our clients where, you know, we might work with them at one company and then, you know, they have a financial event and they start another company or they move to another company and get a 
promotion at another company, and they take us with them. Um, it, and it's especially the interesting thing is it's especially the ones where we have endured some kind of trial together, like we've been in the trenches together uh, in terms of overcoming something, um, where we have the strongest relationships. So I, I don't advocate for companies trying to create disasters. However, the way that you create that strong foundation where you're indispensable to your customers and your clients, where they're irrationally bonded with you, you can really leverage that into long-term success to increase the lifetime value of those customer relationships too. Absolutely. And, he, and here's the deal. And I can't remember what the statistics are, but I believe it's three times more expensive to acquire a new customer than it is to keep an old customer. I have heard that before. Yeah, absolutely. The customer retention, you know, that they, they say like it costs, it's three times more expensive. I've heard the, the 85% rule, all of that. But, you know, regardless of what the numbers are, um, retaining a customer versus going out and acquiring a new customer obviously is, is the key to long-term customer value growth. So you're right, you're right on that. And, and when you look at, you know, going to, uh, you mentioned Amazon, uh, one of the challenges that a lot of businesses have uh, competing with Amazon is, is the fact that Amazon is, is constantly evolving and or stepping up their game. For example, speaking of, of Trump administration, Trump had this public rant accusing Jeff Bezos and Amazon of taking advantage of the U.S. <laughs> Postal Service, and that's the reason that the Postal Service wasn't making money is because, you know, big old bad Jeff Bezos and Amazon had taken this government uh, entity for a ride. And what uh -huh. I love is that Jeff Bezos didn't get in the mud with him, didn't do anything other than started doing less business with the U.S. Post Office, started outsourcing the delivery of Amazon products. And I want to say the last five or six items that I bought from Amazon were delivered the same day. And I think three out of the five items were delivered by an Amazon vehicle and then two of them were delivered by a courier, uh, a private courier. Like a private contractor, yeah. A private yep. contractor. And then here's the thing that, again, makes it tough to compete with Amazon. Uh, not, only can they deliver, not only can they deliver something to you that day for no additional charge or maybe the next day, but now, if you want to return something, you have the choice of taking it to Cole's department store, which I thought was a brilliant move on Cole's side. You can yep. take it to a UPS store, and all you have to do is take it there. You don't need to box it or tape it or wrap it. You don't even need a shipping label. They send you a code. You drop the item off. They scan your code, and within an hour, Amazon is refunding you your money. Right, right. And so, and so if that wasn't convenient enough, then if you want 
UPS will actually come to your house or your office and pick it up. And then, of course, at that point, you do have to have it in a box and a shipping label. Anyway, you were going to say something. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, so like you mentioned Kohl's, and, and that is definitely a brilliant move on, on the part of Kohl's. So what you see going on in the in the brick-and-mortar retail space is, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a decline in the number of people who are actually going into physical stores. A lot of it has to do with Amazon, but a lot of it has to do just with the convenience of online shopping overall. And the indispensability of that as, as a, a way to buy um, – I agree with you that that's a brilliant move on the part of Kohl's to get people physically into their retail stores. For all intents and purposes, Amazon is Kohl's number one competitor, right? Amazon and probably Walmart and Walmart.com, right? And here is a a new way to attract people into your physical retail space, and then Kohl's has the opportunity – also, you know, while you have them in there, get them to look around a little bit. And if, yes. you know, uh, one out of every five customers goes and is like, oh, hey, let me go take a look at that toaster oven over there. And, and then, you know, a percentage of those purchase the toaster oven. That's more toaster ovens being sold. So, um, you know, this, this idea, uh, Amazon, the Amazonification of the world, in some cases, if you can't beat them, join them, figure out how do you exist smartly in an Amazon world. You know, Amazon has made itself 100% indispensable to customers. I, I would say, like, based on that explanation that you gave of your own recent Amazon experience where five products came to you the same day, absolutely, they have, like, sort of permeated your life. Uh, we yes. had an air conditioning problem in the office a couple of weeks ago. I went on Amazon. I bought myself a fan. It showed up in two hours. And the people that I work with were laughing at me, and I was like, I, I do that. Like, I spend more money if it's more convenient, and that's growing Amazon's business. It's bonding me closer to them. All of these things at the same time, you know, like the if you can't beat them, join them scenario with Kohl's, like figure out a way that you can live in an Amazon world and take advantage of the footprint that Amazon has created. And, uh, you know, the the last thing I'll say about this, this whole Amazon conversation, you started out by talking about how, uh, you know, the president uh, was was uh, criticizing Jeff Bezos for. Knowing the uh, the U.S. Postal Service, so Amazon right. is like, all right, we're going to just disintermediate the Postal Service altogether, and we're going to figure out a way to get goods to people faster than in two or three days. Um, it, that demonstrates the power of association. And you can associate yourself with other people, with ideas, with causes, with issues, with values that can add value to your organization. You can also associate yourself with the same that can detract value from the organization. I, I just sort of say this as a, I guess, as a warning or a heads up to everybody who's running a business out there. Um, be mindful of what you align yourself with and make sure that that matches with your values. So if you remember last fall when Nike did the campaign with Colin Kaepernick, or I guess that was last spring, with Colin Kaepernick, and, uh, you know, we had a bunch of middle-aged guys burning their Nikes on Twitter, right? And, uh, you know, everybody was like, don't buy – not everybody, but, you know, there was a whole – there was like an outcry. A lot of people who were like, all right, boycott boycott Nike. People were taking to social media to register their their dislike for Nike the brand because of – 
yeah, their dislike for Nike the brand um, at this at the same rate as people were you know raising their hands to applaud them for that action. A lot of a lot of folks surmised, especially people who were on the on the negative end of that, who were saying like this is Nike shooting themselves in the foot again. Pardon the terrible pun. Um, that you know that that this was going to be the death of Nike. But what we saw was you know this was like a mic drop moment for the marketing team at Nike. They knew exactly what they were doing by by you know standing for something by associating themselves with a particular issue by particular cause and associating themselves with Colin Kaepernick, who has sort of become a poster child for, you know, for inclusion and understanding and things like that. And so they alienated a whole bunch of people, but they were okay with that because the people that brought, they, they became closer to, you know, they created stronger, closer emotional bonds with are the customers that they want to go into the future with. You build a brand for this ideal customer, the customer who's going to be most highly predictive of your success, who is going to be the worth the most over time, the one who is going to spend the most money with you and become irrationally loyal to you. And you have to be just mindful of, of who that person is and make sure every move you make is focused on that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this is the whole thing. The underlying underlining foundation of any brand is to be able to identify your ideal market. And mm-hmm. that ideal market may shift or change over time as the brand itself changes, right? I mean, Apple at one point was just a computer company, and now Apple is, you know, is is more than that, right? They do phones, they do computers, they do music, they do movies, and so on. But so, this is, I think, the number one mistake that small businesses make is that they're afraid. Some kind, in some cases, there's those who don't know any better. They, you know, they think, hey, well, I sell pizza, and therefore everybody is my, you know, everybody eats pizza, and therefore, you know, my right. my my market is everybody. <clears throat> Wrong. So there's <laughs> those people who just don't understand, and then there's those people who are afraid. And when I say afraid, they're saying, well, if I identify my market, it's going to shrink, and therefore I'm going to lose money. And mm-hmm. and and so again. They're afraid or they're mistaken or they don't know how to identify their ideal audience, and therefore they can't seem to build their brand because they don't stand for anything. Right, right. Um, And that's what I call the ideal customer archetype. You build the brand for that one ideal best customer. We all own Apple stuff. Like I'm standing at my desk right now and I have like five Apple things in front of me and they're all amazing and I love them. Um, However, I am not Apple's ideal customer. They get me anyway, right? But their ideal customer is likely, it's likely a male, 
like probably somebody who is like very self-expressive and and potentially in a in a creative field it's definitely someone a lot younger than I am um they're getting me anyway but you can look and see that they've aimed the brand at this one person back to Nike Nike is a brand think about it Nike has so many different product lines and markets that they sell in they sell they sell athletic shoes to uh, middle-aged women from Austin Texas like myself, they sell to high school athletic directors. They sell to the NFL. They sell. Uh, they sell custom golf clubs to you know very high end golfers. Uh, you know the list goes on and on and on. But the Nike brand, if you look at it, regardless of which segment it shows up in and which channel it's sold through, the Nike brand always stands for exactly the same thing. And it really is about tapping into that inner athlete inside of all of us. We aspire to be that inner athlete, and they get us. Nike is great about being consistent across all of those different segments because they have a very, very, very strong brand foundation, and that brand shows up consistently in marketing in all of those different markets and channels and categories, right? And so that is available to emerging businesses, small businesses, this idea of pointing your brand at that singular ideal customer and making choices about that um, because it gives you, it gives you the benefit of consistency, right? And if you know who you are for, you understand what their values and beliefs are and you can align your brand directly to those people based on their values and beliefs. And I'm not just talking about their general values and beliefs, but their values and beliefs relative to the category that you're in, right? So, yes. you know, this is uh, th- this is really, really important. Understanding like what is the what is the sandbox that you're playing in? Who is that customer that I'm going to aim this brand at? Understanding how you become part of their self concept, that's what's going to create a strong brand. So, you know, the shortcut for anybody who is who is listening to this, the shortcut for doing this, it really is just like this five-step process. First step, figure out what category are you in, right? You know, so um, really draw a strong sandbox around who you are. That's your niche. That's your category. If you're, you know, you use the example of the pizza restaurant. Well, you know, are you a pizza restaurant that specializes in uh, maybe, you know, like exotic pizza flavors for home delivery or something like that? You know, define your category. Then the next thing is who is my ideal customer? And how do you figure out who that is? You ask who is the customer who is most highly predictive of my success? Who is this brand built for? What do they look like? Where do they live? Uh, what what do they care about? What does a day look like for them? What are their what are you know what are their values and beliefs relative to the pizza category? Is it that you know they're interested in the in the source of the food? Is it that variety is a value that's important to them? Is convenience important to them? You know things like that that will define you know what the brand is, and to some extent it'll define the business model. And then the third piece is to ask these three I call them the magic brand swag questions, but the three questions, number one, what does it say about that person that they use your brand? So what does it say about that ideal customer that they order pizza from you, right? Versus like, what does it say about somebody that they order pizza from Domino's? What it says about them that they order pizza from Domino's, that the number one thing that they value is, is that the pizza gets there fast, right? And that, you know, they're willing to put aside any beliefs they have about the quality of the food or the taste or the variety, right? 
The yeah. second question that you ask is, what is the one thing they get from us they can't get from anyone else? So the one thing that people get from Domino's that they can't get from anyone else is this brand promise guarantee, 30 minutes or less, or it's free, right? But what's the one thing they get from your pizza restaurant that they can't get from anywhere else? What makes you indispensable to them? And then the third question, this is the branding is sex question, is think about your customer, that ideal customer. Think about them and Ask the question of how do you make that customer a hero in their own story? They're trying to create a life story for themselves. And so let's say your ideal customer for your mythical pizza restaurant is a, is a suburban mom who, you know, her biggest goal in life is to be seen as like the coolest mom on the block. What, how does your pizza make her the hero in that hero story of being the coolest mom on the block? Is it because, you know, she's able to serve gluten-free bubblegum flavored pizza to you know to her kids and her friends and she's you know what gives her bragging rights basically and then the final step step five there is dialing it in by really understanding like what is the personality of that brand how is that brand going to show up you know does it how does it speak what does it look like what you know what color is it what kind of photography does it use what personality traits does it have is it fun and lighthearted or is it more serious and and maybe a more authoritative but that is the whole strategic branding process like all you know all together for you if you do only that then as a business you are so far ahead of so many others in your category yes absolutely uh, and, and i love that uh, i love that you gave those five points there because i was going to ask you uh, about uh, exactly what you know what are the steps so i'm glad that you gave those five steps it's so vitally important uh you know that that people understand who their client is and then if you understand who your client is then you can change your message to attract that ideal client and as you said it may even change your business model a little bit and what one of my favorite brands is FedEx and the reason mm -hmm. that I love FedEx is because FedEx kind of told us and we bought into the fact that we needed things faster. You know, if, it, if, it, if it's important, then you should have it overnight, right? And they created right. this category that didn't even exist, and we as a people didn't even know that we wanted it that bad, right? And I love that about somebody who can come in and tell us as consumers and say, hey, this is going to make your life better. You, you haven't thought about this, but this is going to make your life better. And that's one of my, one of my, uh, what do you call it? Uh, one of the reasons I love FedEx is that they kind of came in and, and created a category that didn't exist. Now, when you FedEx something, you could, you basically aren't necessarily saying use FedEx. You're saying get right. it there overnight. Hey, FedEx this. I don't yep. care if you use UPS or FedEx or you know, whoever, just get it there overnight. And that is when you know that you own that category. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's a really good example of, you know, the, the power of category creation. Now, FedExing something is the gold standard for getting things there fast, right? Yeah. And that is that is truly the ultimate. And the, the best brands in the world are the ones that really solve an acknowledged problem for folks 
that sometimes they didn't even know they had. I started out my career in technology marketing a million years ago, and I was working for, for technology companies like super high tech. Like I worked at Bell Labs when I first started my career. And, you know, we literally had Nobel Prize winning scientists walking in the hallways where, you know, the rest of us in the marketing department were working, right? These right. are not folks who were interested in, in making emotional connections with buyers. These were folks who were interested in creating and commercializing technology, right? And, and so the marketing exercise at the beginning of my career, and I won't tell you how long ago that was, but the marketing exercise at the beginning was about selling a better mousetrap, right? right? What I learned over the past few decades that I've been doing this is that sometimes people don't even know they have a mouse problem, and sometimes people don't even think that mice are a problem. Right. Yes. Uh, right. And and so like the the job of branding is like really understanding that ideal customer. Like what are their problems? What are the problems that need to be solved? The best brands in the world were not born out of solving the most overt problem. Which if FedEx was going to solve the most overt problem, which was you know getting things um, from point A to point B in the shortest amount of time then they would be just like everyone else. They wouldn't be the gold standard. But the reason that FedEx, the reason that customers, their customers use FedEx is for sort of this, this more latent reason, which has to do with like, if absolutely undeniably you want to have no doubt that something gets from place to place, you use FedEx. So, so this is, you know, for your most trusted documents, it's for your most important things. You know, they kind of invented that whole uh, process of being able to track it and, and see it as it's on its way. Like it's for your most important stuff, which isn't the, the, the most apparent reason why people would use it. Like if you if you wanted to get something someplace fast for the cheapest amount of money, you would use priority mail, right? But, right. you know, it, the the FedEx is really about like the absolute. And so a recommendation that I have for everybody who's paying attention to this is um, to look at the work of Clayton Christensen. He has a, a framework. Yes. I don't know if, if you, yeah, like the jobs to be done framework. When, when yes. you think about why people hire a product or a service or a company or a brand, it is to do a particular job for them that maybe isn't the functional, like the direct functional benefit. The job of marketing and branding is to really figure out what is the job that your customer, your ideal customer is hiring you and your product, your service, your brand to do for them. I, the example I give, I run a small business, been doing this for a really long time. You know, I, it's a marketing consultancy. You can't swing a cat over your head in Austin, Texas and not hit 150 people who do exactly what I do. I have a competitor directly across the street from me. Like I look out my window every minute of every day that I'm in the office and I see her time, right? Yet the specific job that people hire me to do that they don't hire her to do is to give them a big kick in the ass, right? Is to, you know, I work exclusively for companies that have a lot at stake to get it right, that they are in growth mode, that they're in a grow or die scaling mindset. They don't, 
They don't have time to deal with the BS. They absolutely have to have what we have because they have something big at stake. They're going public. They're getting ready for a financial event. They've just acquired another company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What they come to us for is the big kick in the pants, right? And so knowing what the specific job is that your ideal customer hires your brand to do, that is your entire marketing message, is it not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, listen, we're out of time. Um, but I want to, uh, again, plug the book one more time. It's called Irrational Loyalty, Building a Brand That Thrives in Turbulent Times. And Deb uh, is also the president of Soul Marketing. And if you, uh, let's see, the, the website, soulmarketing.com, is that right? Yep, that's right. Soulmarketing.com if you want to reach out to Deb and, and uh, see if uh, maybe uh, she uh, can help you out. Uh, if not, grab her book. Uh, Deb, thank you so much for stopping by, and uh, let's connect when I'm in Austin. Sounds great. Thanks, Bert. Have a great day. All righty. Good stuff there from Deb Gabor. Uh, Irrational Loyalty is the name of the book available on Amazon. I'm going to put a link here in the show notes. Grab the book and grab her other book. Uh, and it's just uh, – yeah, let me uh, – somebody just told me I should give out the name of her other book. The name of her other book, excuse me, is Branding is Sex. So um, check out her books. They're both available on Amazon. As always, my friends, let's share this episode with everyone we know. Let's help everyone we know brand better, build a better business, hit or meet or connect with their uh, ideal customer. And Deb just gave you the uh, five steps on how to do that. As always, thank you so much for being here. Remember, you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.